Hey everybody, my name is Alex, and this is Lunchbox Radio. Now, before we get started, I am recording this early, actually, because I am going to be in Philadelphia for, like, three days. Not that long, but still, it's the, like, period of time when the podcast would normally come out, so I'm recording this early on Tuesday. Um, but I just wanted to remind you to go listen to the most recent episode all about um, Freyren, which is a phenomenal show. If you're not watching Freyren, you're like, you're missing, you're missing like a transformative thing, is what I will say. But um, definitely go check out the episode if you want to know more about it. I probably get a little spoilerly because I'm, because I'm me and I tend to get a little spoilerly without thinking about it, but definitely go check it out. It's worth a listen. And on that note, let's jump into what we're talking about, which is the big elephant in the room. And that is the new live-action, Netflix-produced, say it with me now, kids, Avatar The Last Airbender. Anime considered. Lunchbox Radio. Now, in a move that I don't usually pull anymore, I'm not going to bother doing a plot synopsis or having I even do a plot synopsis. I will bring up plot points as I go, and if you haven't seen Avatar Last Airbender, first off, what the fuck are you doing? Go watch it. In my opinion, go watch it and Korra, although people do not like Korra. I deeply enjoy Korra. I think Korra is, like... I think Korra is a crystallization of what they built in Avatar and it's an understanding of what it is to be the Avatar in a way that they couldn't have done in the age range that they were A, targeting but B, had the character be in the first show. I like both shows. Both shows are very good. Lots of people don't like Korra for tons of different reasons. But just go, go watch Avatar stuff. Go watch all the go watch all the animated and drawn Avatar stuff. Read the comics; they're fucking phenomenal. Whole thing. But the reason why I'm not going to do a plot synopsis is because if you're listening, to it, you are probably fairly familiar with the plot of Avatar. You've seen it probably at least once. My, I would hazard to guess, and you know all the little intricacies and all the little like moments of it. So I don't really think we need to prime the pump in that way. What I am going to do is I'm going to bring you back to my episode all about Yu Yu Hakusho, the live action Yu Yu Hakusho. Because I, there's something, there's something here in the live action Yu Yu Hakusho and now the live action Avatar and even something like live action Death Note way long ago. I, there's something, there's some core thing, and this is also true of the live action, um, which people love, and I don't fucking know why. The live action Knights of the Zodiac that was produced by, I think, Katakawa for American audiences, and is, it's bananas. I, and this is somebody, I have a picture in my phone of the, of the, armor from that movie because I saw it when I was in Japan in the, um, in the I think the Banis Pro store in Akihabara but that needs a hero there the reason why I'm bringing up all the live actions that I've talked about is because I think that I think that the biggest problem with the live action adaptation thing is that it always does a bad job of capturing lightning in a bottle in the case of um, Yu Hakusho, that lightning is even weirder. Because the much like the English dub of Cowboy Bebop, and Cowboy Bebop is another one, oh my god, um, that I've also talked about on the show. You can find all of those episodes in the feed, by the way. Um, the 
and it's true of the Cowboy Bebop one too. The loved version of Cowboy Bebop, the most loved one, is the American dub. It's the English dub. Everything else is like even if you ask most fans, they'll just say no. The English dub is where it's at. That is also true of Yu Yu Hakusho. And here's where I'm going to bring up something, a weird non-sequitur here. Um, if you look at something like Ghost Stories, a dub in which it was kind of foisted upon the licensing company, they didn't know what to do with it, so they gave a kind of unprecedented amount of freedom to the dub cast to just go ham on the thing. And it produced one of the weirdest dubs ever known to man. It's the... If you don't know about the Ghost Stories English dub, look it up on YouTube. You'll want, it, it's a wonder it exists. It's, it's a gift and a curse, is what I will say. But that kind of range is possible without going full non-sequitur insult and upset as many people as humanly possible. And the best place I think you see that is in the Yu Yu Hakusho dub. And there's a reason I'm talking about this. And that is, the Yu Yu Hakusho dub captured lightning in a bottle in a certain way. It captured the feeling of being a teenage misfit in the 90s in a very crystallized form. It, like, the, the foul language, the, like, the smack talk, the back talk, the sarcasm, all of it was all kind of beautifully fit together into this cool little package. And that's not just Yusuke or Kuwabara or any of the teenage characters. Genkai is, like, stunningly realized in the dub of that. So is um, Botan. So is um, Kuinma. And, and even so is Kuinma's helpers, the ogre. They're... It all kinds of meshes and fits, and all the characters feel like themselves in a way that, for most, especially American act, American fans of that show, if you watch the Japanese dub, you're like, I, I don't know what to do with this, because he's not as foul-mouthed, he's not as snooty. He is that in some ways, but he's not that in most ways, in the ways that you remember him if you watch that dub. And that lightning in a bottle is, I think, is similar to what happened with Avatar. And I include both. I include. I include all the drawn versions of Avatar in this. Avatar: The Last Airbender, Av the original Avatar: The Last Airbender, all four books of it, Korra, and the accompanying comic books for all that, all have this voice and. You see it kind of start to. You see it kind of start to. What's the best word for it? You you see it kind of start to. Take not be there in the comic books a little bit, but you forgive it because it's like a, it's, those comic books are the like continuation and in especially in the case of the Korra comic book. That's where they get to do the stuff that they didn't get to do on TV. That's where you get to see Korra and Asama's actual relationship as a couple and all of this other stuff. And, and in all of the comic books, they have like extra adventures and they flesh out the world more. Republic City is such a, it's so much more of a living, breathing place in the Korra comic books than it is even in the original show, even in the four books of the original show. And that allows you to forgive some of the, like, flips of voice that have, that occur in those comic books. The problem with the decoupling of that, the attempt at the decoupling of that voice from the medium is that a lot of what makes that stuff work is the exaggerated f 
factor of the medium of animation. And a lot of what make Avatar The Last Airbender such a fun piece of animation in in, in Aang's in the original series or in Legend of Korra is that it is essentially an animation test gone kooky. You are... A lot of the things that they're doing in animation are really primal for Avatar Last Airbender are really primal concepts of animation. Just magnified to the nth degree in the form of the elements bending. A great example of this is the fight between Azula, by the way, spoiler alert for all of Avatar, all of it, um, the fight between Azula and Zuko um, during this, during Sozin's comment, during the like last arc, during the finale episodes of the show. It's so horrifying and beautiful and a demonstration of an animation of, of the animation of fire that is phenomenal. It's incredible to watch just as an animator, just to see like, oh, the, the animators who did this animated fire for like whole minutes and it's horrifying and it feels like fire should feel. It feels like people whose fists are flamethrowers pulling them into each other and pulling the fucking trigger. And you couple that with the really... The way that they treated all of these children at some point like they were adults in a way that, like... It's very difficult to do with living actors. So a perfect example of this is you look at um, you look at Azula, who's played by uh, who's played really convincingly by Elizabeth Yu in the show. I'm gonna like pinpoint actors so you can look them up if you are not playing and watching it. You can at least see the actors who play their characters. But there's a kind of, like, core brokenness to Azula that eventually you, you get to see fully fleshed out by the time she's, like, stuck in a prison <laughs> and, like, chained to the ground to, to be stuck in a prison. She is insane. And, but the thing about Azula is that her, her as a, she as a character has never been not insane. But in order to be that, in order to inherit that as an actor, it would take like a um, Heath Ledger level of dedication to just the madness that that is. And so I watched, um, I watched Danny Mata's uh, video on the first episode, and he, he said something like, he started to say something, and then he didn't say it, and he said, you know what, I'm going to hold off because I have criticisms, but I'm hoping they'll resolve themselves. And then when they didn't, he's like, remember when I said I had criticism? They did not resolve themselves. And he said something really interesting, and I like watching him for live-action adaptation stuff like this, because he is a actual film major and director, so he speaks, he speaks meaningfully about the process and what is clearly falling apart, and he can identify it clearly. Uh, what he said was really smart. He said that the, the writing is there. The writing, the writing of all the characters is totally there. But the acting isn't, and it doesn't feel like they're in an environment where they can where they can be, where they're being guided in the right direction. Probably the person who is guided to be the most like his character is um, Ian Osley, who does a really good job in Sokka, even with the kind of, like, 
chuffed up story that they present across eight episodes because what they're so this is the other thing is that like and yes I would I would like I would like to have the characters have a new thing present a story in a new way but all too often and I'm watching Tokyo Vice right now and Tokyo Vice is also guilty of this all too often what they do is they take the kind of core pillars of the universe of the thing. And as long as they hit those, they don't really need to... They, they don't feel the need to adhere to the story really, really in a really hard way. With Tokyo Vice, it works better than it works with something like this. Because what this show is doing with its storylines, with its with the more episodic moments, is it's those shows, those episodes are deep are definitely episodic and they they stand they stand alone and they are encapsulated in a way, but they also contribute to the build up eventually of the very end of the series over four seasons, and they contribute to the character growth of all the characters, but they also introduce characters and they have conversations about things that were really important to have conversations about at the time. So in the, um, I think it's the, I think when they go to Western Air Temple is when they find um, the, the scientist and his, um, and his son. And a lot of that episode is about the son being disabled. And I know this is a hot button for me, but let me have this. And the son being disabled is like a part of like what Aang realizes is his... is part of what makes Aang okay with what happens to the to the Western Air Temple before it gets attacked by, I think, General Zhao or something and, like, gets overrun and destroyed. But when they take them out of that kind of encapsulated setting and they put them in um, Omashu... And they make the scientist the spy for the Fire Nation, and like, and not not just a a scientist working for the Fire Nation. They complicate everything, and it it gives this weird, um, it gives this weird, different feeling to everything because you you are now. You lose by not focusing in on the stuff, the same stuff the show focused in on. You don't have to present it in the same way. You don't have to tell the story necessarily in the same way. But by not focusing in on that stuff, you start to lose, once again, some of the lightning in that bottle. And you see this with... You see this with the treatment of Aang. And I think, I think Gordon Cormier, the actor who played Aang this time did a really good job with what he was given. But, once again, what he was given was something so self-serious and so so immediately self-serious that there's not as much, that there's barely any levity there. And the levity that does end up there feels weird. And they did things like they removed the... They, they largely removed the kind of arc of sex about sexism with Sokka. They removed the like peng the like the penguin seal sledding scene. And they did those things for lots of political reasons. The majority of them are stupid. And I'm not saying because I think that like sexism should always be shown on TV or something, but when you're 
messing with those kinds of outdated and outmoded concepts, if there's a way to know, it's pretty clear when you see it and it's not and it's not something the show is aware of and it's not something and something that the show is indulging in. So if you look at the sexism in um, Mad Men, for example, the show is presenting that it's not good. The show is Mad Men presents the sexism of the time as deeply flawed and fucked up, just like all the characters in that show. And it uses that to dem to like demonstrate the way Peggy rises through the rises through the advertising world and the way she fights against her perceived, the perceived sexism, but when she realizes that that's not all that's there, that, like, she's also being just, like, a asshole, irregardless of her gender, she adjusts for it. You know, when there's a scene that lots of people circulate around the internet of um, John Hamm's character, Don Draper, just screaming at her about counting your ideas and like vaguely explaining what a job is to her. Not because she's a woman, but because she's new at this. Because she's, you know, at the bottom of the ladder. And this is how it works. And if you want it, if you want, if you want this, then this is how it works. And it might not work. Get it together. And so by the end of that show, you see where she is in still a very sexist, fucked up nightmare world, but she's carved her way through it. In Avatar Left Airbender, the kind of sexism that was removed is like, it's almost like a joke. It's meant, to, it's meant to be grating because it's meant to feel wrong. It's meant to be wrong. And, it, and this is... This is something I wish that lots of shows would just give it up on. And that is that you need to make things feel mature and nuanced and quiet and, you know, delicate. You don't. You just don't need to do that. The same, and some, and many times, it's better if you don't do that. The reason why, like, the arc of Sokka realizing that he's a sexist prick and coming, and escaping that works is because it's so in your face. Because he's like, women, women don't fight. And because when you get to an elder in an, who's also in his culture, the elder also believes that. And even more so than Sokka. And they do have that moment in the live-action show, to be clear. But to include that, probably because they couldn't work around it with Master Paku, but not include Sokka's arc about it, it's feels weird. And they have to struggle to do things like Suki's storyline. They have to, like... They have to mess with stuff constantly. They mess with Yue. Yue's... Yue's story was touching enough without the spirit fox girl angle. That's just weird. That does not need to be there. It's a connection that is created for no purpose. Other than to have a weird callback. That ultimately doesn't give you anything. Because you still get UA you still get the UA sacrificing herself to bring back the moon spirit thing. That happened regardless of whether or not she was a spirit fox when they got trapped in the spirit world. And it... The whole thing... 
And this is the weird part. For the most part, I think that everybody got their characters pretty right. There were a few oddities, a few missteps. Um, Daniel Day Kim does an incredible job as Fire Lord at Fire Lord Ozai. Um, Dallas James Liu does an incredible job as Zuko. Like he is, he is the damaged goods that Zuko is when you meet him. He is a proud. He, he is like putting on the mask of like a proud prince who is clearly no longer wanted, but like not of use, not even wanted, not of use to his deeply abusive fucking father, who is just a miserable wretch of a human. And then you have Azula, who is, who they're... The thing with Azula in the show is when you encounter Azula, she's fully formed. She's like a fully formed fucking nightmare. She's like, the damage had already been done. She is like oily and cruel and vindictive and deeply, deeply socially awkward. You find out by the Ember Island arc, which if they ever do that, it's going to be fucking unhinged. Um... But here what they're trying to do is they're trying is they give you like half of that. And then they're trying to they're giving her more screen time, more more story time than you saw her in the show because they've already introduced her in the um first season, which she's not introduced, I think, until the second season. And they are they are Trying to build her up to be the kind of fucked up by the end of the first season. That character that you see. But the thing about Azula and the thing about the thing about Azula's presence is it's it's evil because it doesn't know how else to be. And you and the thing that makes her su such a great character at when you first see her is that, like, you don't see the kind of abuse just laid on her that you see in Zuko. You see this girl who grew up in clearly a fucked up scenario, but has adapted to her to it in a way that Zuko didn't. And so you realize that the 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 point at which you like get a moment of a pang in the heart for Azula is when you see her the fact that she had no she had no social grace she built she's only built to function as a conqueror as a warrior she did no social she had no social norms in her head to work from that's what you see in the Ember Island in the Ember Island episode but when you see her in the comic books, what you see is you see some is you see a, you see a, a woman who was a girl, a young woman who was a young girl who was abandoned by her mother, and you see what that did to her. And so, I wonder if this gets a second season. I real I really do. I I don't it has not gotten very good reviews because it is just not very good. It's not it's not M. Night Shyamalan. It's not we don't have an Ong problem on our hands. But it's not it's not what it needed to be. And not only is it not what it needed to be, but it's not it doesn't really have a shadow of what was there. It's It's going through the motions. It's hitting the right points, but it's not It's not. It doesn't have the same heart or intentions that the original had. 
And the, the and once again, the the comics lack a little bit of both of those things. But what but what it makes up for it with is it is continuing adventures of these characters. It's it's continuing the story, and it is. And you see this in Korra. You see this in Korra afterwards, because that Korra was made after the comic book after the um, the Avatar: Last Airbender comic book came out, and they account for them in the in storylines in that show. Is they use the comic books in, on both series to build on the relationships that were created during the each of the shows. So. By the end of Avatar, Zuko, by the end of the original Avatar series, Zuko and Aang are kind of really good friends. And throughout the, uh, throughout the search and all, and all the other comic books, you see them build on that friendship to, like, grow to understand each other and grow to find, and grow to find out things about each other they didn't know. And then when you encounter Zuko in Avatar Korra, he'd been friends with Aang for decades. He's like in his 70s. And he's fucking... He was Aang's best friend. And he uses that fact to help Korra when Korra's cut off from the Avatar states. And now here's what I want to like get like a core story thing nailed down and talked about. And that is the treatment of the past lives, of the past Avatar lives in this show. And something interesting that they, I think, kind of pulled off in this show because it had never been really touched before. So in the original show, when Aang speaks to it to all of his past lives he speaks to um he speaks to Roku he speaks to Roku a bunch of times cuz Roku is the immediate is the immediate past life he speaks to Kyoshi a couple of times and Kyoshi shows up and murders some people and like in like in reality and he speaks to Yang Chen which is the first time you ever see Yang Chen and he speaks to Korok but Yang Chen and Korok are like passing, not really dealt with. In the in the show, in the live action show, the only way he can speak to the path lives of the Avatar is by going to their shrines and straight up talking to them, and straight up meditating, meditating, flipping into the spirit world and talking to them. In case of, he finds this out in the case of Kyoshi by doing it. And Kyoshi eventually just takes over his body and fucking murks a bunch of people. Um, for, as, as a fun action scene, which I will totally forget. And then he goes to Roku's shrine and talks to Roku. And then he goes to Korok's shrine. And this is where Korok... This is where the show takes a leap in a way that I wasn't expecting. And um who plays Kirk actually? Um well in in any case, um the thing they do with Kirk is really interesting because Kirk isn't touched very often but very much in the series proper. What you know about Kurok, if you've consumed all the Avatar stuff ever, is you know you know his story because you know Yang Chen's story. Because because you know um not yet because you know Yang Chen's story and because you know um Kiyoshi's story. You don't know the you don't know Kurok's story. Kurok is the Avatar in the middle of those two and Yang Chen essentially fucked him over because she was so preoccupied with the living world that she kind of like hand waved a lot of the spirit world stuff and that created the scenario in which Kurok that Kurok inherited and he had to go hunt 
He basically spent his life hunting down evil spirits so they didn't fuck up the so they didn't disturb the balance of the human of of the entire world. And that ravaged his body and he ended up dying younger than any avatar before or since. At like the age of thirty three. Like I'm older than Kurok. If you're over the age of thirty three, congratulations, you've outlived Kurok. But um that's but that's all given to you in like a second hand way in books. In um the in in Yang Chen's books and in Kiyoshi's books. But here they choose to expand on Kurok a little bit in that they present one of Kurok's, you know, knives as like a thing that as like a thing that exists. And they give him more screen presence than he had. I don't super think they did a whole lot of good with that, but I think it's interesting that they correctly identified like the only past avatar who's not who hasn't been super fleshed out is Kurok. We can do something there. I don't think that something they did was necessarily worthwhile or great, but they did have a good instinct in that moment. The the actors you can tell which actors really sat with their characters in the show. Like you you see um Ian Osley's performance as Sokka and you're like, oh he watched the show. He like watched the show at least once all the way through, and specifically noted Sokka because Sokka feels like a blend of sarcastically goofy, but also like trying to be serious. But the world around him won't quite let him sometimes. Kind of thing. He does a really good job with that. Dallas James. Dallas James Liu does an incredible job with Zuko, and I think he probably sat with Zuko as a character for a while. And was like, let's watch this guy's arc and see what makes him tick and see what I can bring into my performance. And he nails it. Like, even more than Sokka, Zuko is like, they nailed it, would nail to a wall in this show. He is exactly what he needs to be, and that probably and that's a definitely great but b it it also makes it makes the other characters feel it makes the other characters feel weird because they're not quite nailed when you when you and that makes me wonder and this is gonna be really this is gonna be really sticky because they're they're doing their best to correct for past mistakes in this show. That's a lot of what this show is trying to do. It's trying to correct for the past mistake of the M. Night Shyamalan movie. You, you know, no more Ong, a, a, an entirely kind of racially appropriate cast of like of like Asian and brown and you know diverse actors but also they are much more self serious and I think that like they these IPs are gold mines if done correctly. They just thought Look at the original three X-Men movies. They were incredible. They made so much money. They were part of the start of the superhero boom of cinema. I, they've never done that again. Like, they, they, Fox never... Fox, in a time with X-Men, was never able to do that again after those three movies. I, the... Reason they keep doing these things is because 
if you get it really right, if you if you manage to strike gold, you strike real gold. Imagine, imagine a world in which the Yu Yu Hakusho live action was fantastic, was beyond reproach good. It would be incredible. It would be it would be on every you know must watch list across the internet. Same thing with this. Same thing with the Cowboy Bebop show. And now I want to talk about Deadpool for just a hot second here. Deadpool is a shining example of how you do this correctly. I, I just watched the, last, the first Deadpool over again just because I'm, you know, like, I have, like, a weird in-between day. I was like, oh, let's just watch the Deadpool movie because I can. Um, but the thing with Deadpool is Deadpool was born out of a failure. And that failure was the Green Lantern movie. Ryan Reynolds wanted to be a superhero, so he said yes to the Green Lantern movie. And that <laughs> is awful. It's just so bad. It, like... It doesn't miss the point of Green Lantern, but it's not the Green Lantern you want. Because the Green Lantern that people want isn't the white guy. <laughs> it's the, I forget his name, the um, black Green Lantern from Justice League. That's the one people love. If you're going to do a Hal Jordan Green Lantern instead, you better absolutely nail it. And it just, it just didn't nail it. It just It's not very good. In, the same, in kind of the same way, the Black Adam movie is awful. <laughs> But Ryan Reynolds was like, I fucked this up. And so eventually he got it in his head that he wanted to do he wanted to do over. And he wanted to do over for very for a very, very, very real reason of he's like, I fucked up. You know, I I touched the hot stove of comic book fans and I I came away burned. But I want to do right by this. I want to do right by the by by the comic book fandom. And eventually, I forget the um, director of of the Deadpool movies. But he approached a director and he said, "Look, I I think I want to make a Deadpool thing." And they didn't even wait for a studio to greenlight it. They spent their own money and made test footage. And leaked it online. <laughs> they willed that shit into existence hardcore. And now, those movies are so successful, even though they're R-rated, even though they're like every everything that, that superhero movies try not to be. They're violent, they're profane, they're torrid and disgusting. They are R-rated. Even with all that, Disney's making a Deadpool 3, baby, because why would you look at Dick? Why would you kick a gift horse in the mouth? And what that says, it, and, and the reason why that makes so much sense is you have this, and this happened with, um, the, with, the, fir- with the first through third Iron Man movies, is you have this kind of perfect marriage of actor and character, and a dedication to making a thing that feels true to the thing it is based on. But regardless of whether or not the money scenario works. And make no mistake, the Iron Man movie, the original Iron Man movie, they were not super convinced that it was going to work. Same thing with the Deadpool movie. That's why they had to do test footage for an R-rated an R-rated an R-rated superhero movie in the X-Men universe using B-tier characters from X-Men, like Negasonic Teenage Warhead, and Deadpool, the guy who talks about chimichangas and uses the phrase maximum effort. Now those things, now that, now that film and now the Iron Man movie, which took a huge chance on Robert Downey Jr., are cre- created institutions. 
So that's the reason why they keep taking stabs at these things. They're hoping that one will catch. They're hoping that they'll do a good enough job on one and one will catch and it will create an institution. I would say that I'm very worried about what they would do with future points in the in the Avatar storyline, particularly Toph, because the thing about Toph is Toph is... Toph is a really great... And I don't think that the, that the team that makes Avatar ever pulls this off again. Toph is kind of a perfect disabled character. I, and I, I know that sounds insane, but she's kind of a perfect disabled character because she's disabled, but people don't... People, most people around her don't care. They don't fucking care. Like, by the time that she's part of the, the gang, Sokka's just like, so you're blind, so what? You're still an asshole. Everybody's kind of like, you're blind, so what? You're still an asshole. Like, you're lucky you're such a good earthbender. And, like, her, nobody ever pulls punches against her when, they, when she's fighting. She doesn't... She has problems that equate to her, like, she doesn't like standing on sand because she can't use seismic sense to see. And it makes her feel, like, alone and, like, in a dark world, which she does not enjoy. But generally speaking, she kind of fucking K. She, she, she functions in the world without a sense. And it's not... She's, she's not at a disadvantage. In fact, her difference gives her the ability to look at things in a way that allows her to create metal bending, ultimately. With the fact that they just waved away the first kind of like salvo of disabled characters in this show, they just kind of wave them away. It doesn't super matter. <laughs> they don't give me much hope for that in the future. They don't give me much hope for the fleshed out characterization of Tai Lee or the fleshed out characterization of Mai. The writing on so, and I said I said this earlier. So many so many shows think they need to be like deep and delicate and careful with their writing, but the writing for Avatar was pretty blunt. It was pretty in your face because it was targeted at children. It was it just was. So they they didn't they didn't take the time to like couch things and like make things multifaceted. They said no, Sokka's a sexist pig. That's not okay. This week, we'll find out how it's not okay, and Sokka will learn a lesson. <laughs> the refreshing thing about that is that, it, that, that that's super true. That, that's easy to prove in, in reality, and so much of like what we go to media for as, as a form of escapism is we don't have to deal with like the fact that, like, our manager is a sexist prick, but he's also a manager, so, like, we have to deal with him. No, like, in... in so, I haven't finished it yet, but I, I so love the concept. Um, ZOM 100, as much of a train wreck of, of, its, of a production as it was, was really, was really beautiful in this, in this way, in that it use the zombie outbreak to just kind of like remove its characters from the fucked up from from our fucked up reality it said how do you get out of this oh the world has to end the world has to end before you get out of your shitty job the world has to end before you separate yourself from a life as a luxury realtor where do you get your kicks from being in a S&M hotel but you're a little dead inside. Like, and that's all, those are the two main male characters. And it's... 
the world has to end before you let go a little bit in the form of um, the main female love interest. And it, it, in its bluntness, in many, in many, um, in many shonen anime's bluntness, they allow a, a level of connection with those characters that you don't necessarily always get when they're saying, the, when they're whispering the lessons in your ear. In like, and then if you go back to shows where they are whispering some stuff in your ear, knowing what you know from seeing the show through to the end, it hits you like a ton of bricks. I recently watched um, Naruto, <laughs> the first episode of Naruto, for the first time in a very long time. That shit made me cry because it's like the level of intentional ostracization in that show is off the fucking charts. And it just makes you sad. It just makes you sad when you know what's happening and you're like, oh, fuck. It's not his fault. Let him have a friend, goddammit. And also, you see in that show, you see the, you see the inner workings of adults as they look at this kid who's been ostracized for a reason he can't control and it's not his fault. And they're just like, you know what? Fuck this entire deal. <laughs> I, I've got this kid's back. Everybody else can fucking bite me. And you see that in many adults in, this show, in that show. You see that increasingly more people. And they're like, oh, everybody's a, a piece of shit. Like, uh, we're the problem. And in Avatar, they're not screaming. They're not necessarily screaming the lessons, at least in the first season. And the fact that they remove things like the penguin sweat, the fact that they remove much of the fun of the show, much of the fun points of the show, makes the, makes the kids feel more like children trying to deal with the adult world than more like than kids who will inevitably have to save the world. And that it just doesn't work. On that, but on that note, if you like the show, um, new episodes come out every Thursday currently, um, and there and the show is always like this. It's always a um, my thoughts on a new anime or anime related, in the case of Avatar: The Last Airbender, property that is all I've got for you this week. My name is Alec, this has been Lunchbox Radio, and I will talk to you next Thursday.